Hello everyone, and welcome to Food Navigator Asia's monthly podcast, the FNA Food and Beverage Trailblazers. This is a series where we speak to and get to know more about groundbreaking food and beverage firms in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as the people behind them and their stories. I am Pearly, the editor of Food Navigator Asia, and as always, I am your host for this series. Joining me today is Ellen Lai, founder and CEO of Profile Print. Profile Print is a food technology firm that has developed an AI food traceability platform and a fingerprint for various foods, if you will, which is started with tea and is now gradually expanding to multiple types of food products. But before we get into the details, first of all, hello, Ellen. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, hi, Pali. Thanks for inviting. No worries. Great to have you here today. And I guess I think the first thing I'd really like to start off with is to get a clear definition from you, I guess, on the profile print technology and how it works just for the benefit of listeners who might not be that familiar with how it goes. So profile print essentially digitalized the food ingredient assessment by having fingerprint able to be correlated with AI models such that within a few seconds, we are able to without seeing, touching or tasting the ingredient and to know actually the parameters of the profile. By that, you're saying that there could be different sort of sort of like flavors, sort of aroma, sort of characteristics that, you know, could just leap off the screen and let let um, consumers know what what these taste or smell or feel like without them actually even needing to touch or taste the actual product. Exactly. So um, sensory profiling is one area that we are able to do with the fingerprint, but um, a lot of clients are also looking beyond just sensory into chemical parameters, Mm. physical characteristics, as well as whether this product has been adulterated or not. Based on what you've just told us, it would be great if you could also help to highlight for us how this technology is sort of important for the various areas of increasing importance within the food sector. So as you mentioned, you know, things like provenance, traceability, food safety, how how would it work here? I think what's important is firstly the realization of how innovations can change a very traditional space. Um, And of course, if we were to look into where the areas of importance um, all start off with the amount of onerous work for us to do assessment and grading. <laughs> so today, this process has been quite painful. Um, so that often result in just sample testing. You choose a small batch out of the entire batch. Mm. Is there a better way that you are able to be more objective, more consistent, and able to do this test right uh, more comprehensively? So I think that's how we all started. But of course, more and more we are starting to see once you're able to do that are you then able to tell whether this product has been adulterated or whether this product is fulfilling what your client requires and i think these are new areas um, of growth that we're experiencing now in the market have you seen any food or beverage categories in particular within the apec region where this sort of technology has become you know increasingly very relevant Yep. Um, when we first started, um, we as a small startup with limited resources five years ago, we were cautious about where to go into. So we came up with a simple framework, right? If you look at x-axis, we have got x and y. X-axis, we look at um, how differentiated the products are. Um, obviously, products that's more differentiated is worth for us to do fingerprinting. But another important axis is velocity. Um, the amount of exchange of hands is important because the more you exchange hands, the more it's differentiated, the more you will need to go through this whole sea touch taste grading process. And so when we first started, very much has been in ingredients such as cocoa, coffee, tea that requires grading um, and requires 
a lot of grading. But as we start to move along and deploy our solution, we also realize that it's no longer true that commodities should not be an area we should look into. Simply because what is defined as commodity today is because there isn't a better way to assess the grade or the, the quality. Mm. And hence, we just classify them together. So one example is soybeans that most of us would easily classify them as commodities. But as we start to work closer with the soybean producers, the manufacturers, actually the grade, the protein level, the quality, the freshness, all makes a huge difference in the end product that you're using it for. And one particular growth area is actually new protein. A lot of mm. such um, soy protein ends up in making this alternative proteins where if you are selecting the wrong soy to begin with, you then end up in a lousier product. So that's also where we saw a lot more growth moving out of what we firstly defined as highly differentiated and high velocity into area that is now from the commodity area that's moving into up-leveling themselves into something more differentiated. So it's moving just from like the basic sort of like um, ingredient products into something that's going into more value-added products. Exactly. Ah, okay, very cool. So on on that note, you know, of course, I I understand you're working with many sort of international companies with proofs of concepts, you know, as well in this in in this area. So, wanted to ask based on all the work you're doing, you know, are you seeing any differences, you know, in food trends or in areas of concern that you know um different companies are looking at in terms of whether they're looking at maybe provenance or food safety or sensory profiling, you know, what 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 are the differences you're seeing between what the Asian markets are looking for? and the Western markets are looking for? Mm, to be honest, after working with um, quite a handful of global corporates, I dare say the difference is lesser between the East and West, but mm -hmm. rather between a more visionary company versus a more traditional company. So you can have the same visionary companies in Asia or in uh, in America, um, and equally you have the same traditional companies in both parts of the world. So mm -hmm. I think the, this difference to me really has to do with leadership on whether the management sees the value of transforming it because transformation comes along with hard work, resources, as well as risk. And I think those companies that we work with, right, um, started off with companies that are more visionary, trying to change, but gradually we are already working with companies that are more learning the opportunity and taking small steps such that we can make this uh, change and transform at the industry level. So I think we're quite fortunate that, that the differences is more in the stages of the companies rather than between the East, West, or even between mm -hmm. uh, the type of verticals that they go into. But I think the point about trend, the value of a rapid fingerprint technology now allows us to faster without that years of experience to now be able to qualify the grade. By doing that, we are empowering the industry to be more premium. We're now seeing demand that is premiumized. You no longer just want people to buy rice just because they are rice and they feel my stomach. You want to buy rice because it fits a certain profile, either sensory or characteristics that I care about, that I'm willing to pay for, and that creates opportunities. Market segmentation is what we're quite familiar with in the marketing world, right? But how do you really do it ultimately today is still based on C-Touch taste. Now, if you're mm. able to rapidly ascertain them, not just at procurement, but in process and upon delivering to a client, now that creates that opportunity for them to price differently because people are willing to pay differently for different quality of the ingredients that they buy.
Mm, so that is another use of the tech. It's like, you know, the ability to provide sort of a premiumization segmentation function. Is that, is that it right? It can go both ways. So of course, mm. premiumization is always exciting, but often the market may not be ready. So while mm. we can do premiumization, we can also do cost down. Really about mm. finding then the right ingredients that fits my client's requirement today. Am I over providing quality where all they need is at a certain level. So that gives them both opportunity to up profile and save costs. Mm. So in this you know, day and age where obviously people are worried about inflation, people are worried about rising costs and people are worried about, you know, about, you know, consumers also being worried about uh, costs being transferred over to them. So yep. is there a way in this sense, like, you know, for profile print to help in that way, like, you know, to, as you mentioned, sort of lower costs and perhaps not have costs transferred over to consumers as well? I just came back uh, from a, a long trip to a client's uh, factory. Um, for any reasons, I'm not going to share the full details, but I'll be happy to share a simplified case study so that the listeners can have a better mm-hmm. idea how we actually help cost down without affecting quality. Now, this client of ours actually works on sourcing uh, ingredients from different parts of the world. And obviously, for various reasons such as availability, cost, mm-hmm. economic uh, costs and of course uh, regulatory requirement, right? They often need to find the right combination to create the end product for the clients. They've been doing it for years and what's happening is suddenly they realize that one of the ingredient prices has gone up but they needed that. How do they then balance? Now today, they use the experience. They'll say, maybe I'll drop this by 5% and then I'll increase this mm-hmm. by 5% to use from a source that I traditionally don't use. But the challenge of course is what if I blend to the extent where my clients reject because not forgetting in a factory production setting the moment you make any of these blends right it's large volume Mm. you don't want to make that mistake where after you blend wrongly your clients reject it what's going to happen to your goods you'll be wasted right now if you're able to profile them using profile print you're then able to reverse it and say hey actually i can potentially use 30 percent of this ingredient, replace it with another sauce that's traditionally less uh, maybe fragrant, yet Mm. the client will definitely say yes. And I think by doing that, that becomes a very dynamic blending module where prices change all the time, your supply chain disruptions can change depending on time of the year, and then that gives you the option to do different blending based on the need. Just by sharing with you this example of taking a 10% reduction of one of the ingredients, replacing with a Southeast Asian ingredient, that saved our client 1.6 million US dollars just for one SKU, just by moving 10% of a certain ingredient and translate down to the consumers um, Mm -hmm. as well as the production line such that you can improve your productivity. Okay, I think now we've talked uh, quite a fair bit about profile print, about the industry. I think your plans for a global standard as well. But now I'd like to find out a little bit more about, you know, your own entrepreneurial journey so far. So I went through your LinkedIn. I understand you have quite the diverse background. You know, you were in the military, (laughs) you were doing asset management, you were doing hoteling, you were doing venture capital investments. So, you know, okay, how did you find yourself here as a food sort of industry entrepreneur? I, I guess I've entered into three phases of my life where my first phase was uh, um, because I was bonded to government, I had to serve up my bond of public service and I learned a lot of skill sets of large organization, public policies, uh, execution. And then that 
then moved on very quickly in the corporate world where I was then um, sent overseas. I was in China. I was actually working in a listed company where I then learned a lot more um, commercial value and understanding of the global market. Um, that I spent another eight years. And interestingly, while well, I maybe call it the eight years each, and then the next eight years that I'm currently in, um, started realizing that there's a lot more that one can do when you're given the ownership and the flexibility to go faster and try out new things. And I think that's what I typically don't get it when you're in large organization. I think you you have a lot of benefits, of course, being a large organization because you learn from it. You have got a team of people that support um, our business thesis. But when you're on your own, the value add is that you get to try, you get to test it out and you get to mm. fail and you fail fast. And I think that's really the next phase that I, I, I got myself into because um, this is also where I think in terms of the growth of the world, we started seeing more opportunities. But Unfortunately, I personally don't feel that large corporates are always moving as fast uh, for good reasons because large corporates need to be more stable and even if they create their own venture teams or innovation teams, right, um, the risk profile is still very different, right? So I think that's also where I saw the opportunity to then create an outfit myself. I think in all of your background, there wasn't really that much in terms of uh... Of course, food industry, I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing was like, you know, IT or AI or anything like that. So like, how how how, how did you manage to make the leap, essentially? I mean, I'm, I'm trained as an engineer. Uh, and I think uh, along the way, by being in an area where I was traveling widely, uh, both in developed and developing nations, that also gave me the opportunity to see the arbitrage between how we can use technology to then surf face um, what I would deem as an, an equity issue, right? Whether we can create better value for the farmers, mm. yet at the same time, um, help producers, help um, your consumers to get a better deal. What about entering, you know, the food industry as the food, food kind of, uh, kind of aspect? You know, was there a big challenge for you there? So, um, interestingly, I'm not a foodie. Uh, I think people who know me yeah. really well know that I eat uh, to live rather than live to eat. <laughs> so, very often people ask me, what do you need? I just make sure that, you know, they are healthy, they're clean food, and that's what I care about, right? <laughs> but, but of course, again, about um, the journey of learning is where I start to realize not everybody behaves like me. And people care about quality, people care about taste, people care about sensory. And I think that's also where I always remember um, when I was um, just starting Profile Print, client came to me and said, Alan, I think you can do this very interestingly for coffee. Can you help me to profile? But as a coffee noob, I wouldn't even say a coffee noob. I was even allergic to coffee. Oh I've not gosh. drank coffee for maybe about 30 years. And all of a sudden, the client comes to me and gave me many good quality coffee and say, Alan, try this. You're going to tell me whether you can make the difference. I'm like, uh, okay, I can't even drink coffee, right? So I force myself to drink coffee. Uh, I get palpitations. I actually oh. get headaches. I can't sleep if I drink coffee after three. Um, now I drink at least three cups of coffee every day. In a way, that offered me the chance to revitalize my experience with coffee again. Wow. So I started learning. I started learning about profiling and started realizing, hey, actually, it does have a very unique profile. And so to me, sometimes it's all about open-mindedness, right? I mean, you may not like coffee um, simply because you couldn't sleep when you were 18 years old and then that affected the way you see it. But why not give yourself a chance again? So while in the last few years, I pick up coffee and I understood coffee better and in, in an interesting way, that became also a better way for me to understand the industry much better. 
what do you think has been the biggest difference between your previous career paths, your previous eight years, eight years, you know, and what you are doing now? Wow. Um, I must admit, in my last few companies, right, um, I have a lot of freedom. And I think in the mm. same way that freedom has been the same. So I was never held back by, by more sponsors or by senior who say you can't do that. I think I think generally you you go out and you make a change, right? And if your bosses say no, you try first la. And if you fail, then you just say sorry, Laura. So I always believe that in any innovation, right? You try first, see results, and then you if it doesn't work, then you try it again. And so I've never had this issue of of having um a stifling environment. So in that sense, a lot of people would think that big organizations and startups are different in terms of how stifling it is. I actually don't feel that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. But maybe thinking through it, the key difference really may be how nimble we can be. Um, no matter what, in large organization, you have got larger structures, you have got um, certain rules, and hence there's some things you can just do it, right? So for example, if you intend to travel to understand a market, you have to get approval and you make sure that you're not having any meetings and stuff like that. But it's a small, nimble startup. If you want to fly, just fly this afternoon, right? You can literally just go <laughs> out there, arrange a meeting, fly in, understand it, and fly back on the same day. So I think... Agility and nimbleness is the value of what startups bring to the market. Um, And I think that becomes also the biggest difference. Because if you ask ourselves, what are we able to do better than our clients? Our clients have resources financially and in terms of manpower. Why do they need us, right? So in terms of deep skill sets of experience, they have all of that. So if we were to challenge them on that basis, I think we're just going to be looking quite silly. But I think the value is that we are able to move fast and moving fast for them to see the value of how someone more nimble can change their work in a more efficient way. Mm -hmm. And I think that very much to me is the biggest difference between previous career and what we are doing today. What about, you know, when when you were starting out on this journey and making, you know, this big change, essentially, is there anything that you wish you had known at that point in time? Anything that you might have changed if you had known this in advance? Uh, that um, startup journey is never going to be a straight line. Mm. Um, it's also never going to be an S-curve that what you always see on the chart. Uh, <laughs> you don't always have that uh, fast acceleration and then you go to the hockey stick. Um, not <laughs> always like that. Very often it's complex up and down and you have to figure your way out. And I think this is interesting because it then means that if I had known this earlier, um, I would have been probably a little bit more cautious, uh, yet at the same time, a little bit more aggressive. Why I say that, it simply uh, means that when you have early success, Mm. you should be cautious. You -hmm. shouldn't be too happy about your early success simply because it's up and down, right? And similarly, Mm. when you have failures, you shouldn't be too disappointed too fast. You should actually be continuing to be excited about it because you know a lot of what you can and cannot do is not under your control. Um, So one clear example I would say would be COVID. Um, COVID obviously Mm. is painful for all of us, but it was also one of the key factors that no one could have predicted that gave us these opportunities for companies to be more open-minded to digital solution because people Mm. couldn't travel and hence they were more willing to try out solutions like ours without this COVID, we probably will take a longer time to reach where we are today. Um, do you have any advice for those who are looking into food entrepreneurship, you know, or looking to make a big career change that you have done? Uh, I I would say I would say it comes in two folds. I think it's external and internal. So I think 
externally, of course, you have to get your contacts right, meet the right people, get people to teach you about industry, tell you things that otherwise you can't Google online easily. I think that obviously is a very important phase mm-hmm. that all entrepreneurs must validate the market first before making that big jump, right? Yep. But internally, you have to be able to be comfortable with yourself. With the fact that you're no longer some big shot in the corporate world, you cannot bring up your title and a name card and mm. ask people for a meeting because even the most junior guy in your client may not care about you. <laughs> and are you comfortable going through years of that, becoming the only staff or the only few staff in the company, um, struggling through doing all the basic photocopying or maybe not even photocopying, photocopying machine is quite expensive. So we probably started off with uh, hand copying uh, any notes that we have and, and then really get your hands dirty, right? to be comfortable and to do that it's not just about yourself right internally it's your family members mm. uh, your spouse your kids are they all in agreement that you take on such a limb so i think this external validation and connection plus your internal resilience has to be agreed upon comfortably before then you take on this this leap of faith la. okay thank you so much for joining me today alan it was so great to have you on this podcast today my pleasure Thank you so much. And also thank you everyone for listening to this podcast as well. And I wish everyone a great day ahead. For Food Navigator Asia, this is Curly signing off.